I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. This week's guest is Dr. Wes Ely. He's the Grant Little Endowed Chair in Medicine and a physician scientist and tenured professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He has published studies in the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and The Lancet, and his writing has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, USA Today, and other publications. He is the founder and co-director of the Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center, an organization devoted to research and recovery for people affected by critical illness. He is the recent author of Every Deep Drawn Breath, a book we'll discuss a bit today. Wes, thanks for coming on the podcast. Aaron, thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. You know, we have a a common, I guess, friend. Uh, In the book, you talk a a lot about Dr. Ed Hipponik, who, I I mean, I went to med school at Wake, and he taught our poem course, and I rotated through the unit uh, with him. Really wonderful physician, just impeccable. Um, So I was so happy to see his name in in your book. I couldn't think of a better way to start this podcast than to talk about Ed Hipponik. And for those who don't know who that is. He was a leading pulmonary and critical care physician. He retired a few years ago, but trained at Hopkins and with some of the leaders across the world and country. And the reason that it's such a great way to start this is that he really embodied mentorship for me and taught me what it meant to go outside of myself to try and help other people find their own path and to help people really get through the process of discernment. And for anybody who gets to every deep drawn breath, it's really not a book about medicine. It's, it's, a, it's a group of stories about real human beings, their lives and, and their own path through suffering and recovery. And somebody told me last week, Aaron, they said, you know, your book is just a confession. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's fine with me for somebody to think it's a confession because I have a lot to confess and I had a lot of shame and guilt as I was going through medicine. And uh, that really led me to write this book, which is not a memoir. It's a, you know, it's a book of narrative nonfiction about real people. So way to go starting with Ed (laughs) Hipponic. I want to rewind a little bit and talk about you because one of the things that you mentioned and I immediately perked up when I saw this in the book was your path to medicine. I, I feel like everyone sort of has a different path. In, in the way they come to medicine as a, as a profession and a vocation. And you worked as a farmhand in Louisiana. Tell us a bit about your path to medicine. How did you come to be a physician? Yeah, I'd love to tell you about that. In fact, I'm, I, might, I might just read a tiny bit from the book right there. I, I opened it up when you said that. You know, my dad left us when we were little and my mom was an English teacher. She was working on fourteen dollars to $16,000 a year. We, had four, we grew up in a four-room house where mom, as a single mother, was trying to raise us in the deep south in Shreveport, Louisiana, and we had no money. So I got this job as a farmer, and we had like 6,000 tomato plants and everything to scale. It was a huge farm, and my job was to run the planting and the harvesting of those vegetables and plants. And let me read to you kind of a reflection about what got me decide, decided to go into medicine. The men I worked alongside, black, brown, and white, formerly educated and not, young and old, welcomed me each year as we talked in the half-light before dawn, tossing hay bales up into the dusty rafters of the old barn. I felt I belonged, but I didn't. As I grew older, I began to see the divide that separated the pickers' lives from mine. 
The obvious difference is at first that I would move away out into the world while they would stay constantly pouring themselves into the fields, but never advancing. This was their entire life. And no matter how hard they toiled or dreamed, change might never come. And then the seemingly smaller things, abscessed teeth that turned into huge gaps in their smiles, a bruised leg that never healed, the cuts and scrapes that didn't get the stitches they needed and so oozed, attracting flies, a minor ailment that they might dismiss for a month or year or two, laughing it off until maybe it wasn't so minor. Perhaps it would even prevent them from earning a living. I began to understand that the pickers couldn't afford to stop working long enough to help themselves, even if their lives depended on it. They didn't have the safety net that I did. I saw the ways I was supported by many people around me who guided me and lifted me up. If I did fall, it wouldn't be too far. So let me stop there and just say that I go on in the next paragraph to talk about these books that my mother organized for our book club. And one of them was, you know, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. And the reader will find that Maya has a thread throughout the whole book. And in fact, at the end of the book, I get back to her son, Guy Johnson, who told me this beautiful quote that appears in every deep drawn breath, but is nowhere else because he only gave me the first permission. It's that she taught him, I write from the black perspective but I aim for the human heart. And when I heard him tell me that, you know, and he gave me permission to put it in every deep drawn breath, I thought back to this story that I just read you because I was there with people from Latin America and people of color, blacks, Indians too. And I was watching their lives and could see how I could make something of my life by serving them. And so that's when I chose to go into medicine because I thought if I can use science and education to get back to helping them from a social justice perspective, then that's what I want to do with my life. And yesterday I was with a a father of a young woman who has sarcoma and she was so ill and I, I was kneeling in front of him and he said, why are you kneeling? And I said, because when I get in this position, I'm reminding myself and you that I'm here to serve you, that this is my job and my vocation. So it really goes all the way back to that initial story. And I I appreciate you giving me a chance to share that. Thank you. Yeah, it's a very humanistic perspective. And and in your prologue, you write that there's been a, uh, quote, loss of humanity that occurred in medicine over the last 50 years. How have things changed? Why have they changed? What, what have you noticed about that loss of humanity? What I noticed was that in my own life as a physician, and I'm not pointing fingers here because I've lived this in my own you know, day-to-day as a doctor, is that things got pushed too much into the realm of how many people can I see in a half day? How many patients can I rush through my machinery of medicine And then in addition to that, as technology expanded, and since your podcast is finding this medicine soul, you know, we're, we're sitting here trying to find what is the soul and our purpose here. And when we put technology between us and a person like a ventilator or sedation, it does separate me from seeing into their eyes, from understanding who they are. And that is a real limitation on seeing their soul, because ultimately I am here to treat an entire person that is mind, body, and spirit. 
And if I only treat their illness as a set of lungs or a heart or a gallbladder, then I am missing the boat on what's truly uh, key for, for me to be of service to that human being. There's a temptation in medicine to divide up our patients into living and dead, good outcomes and bad, a very simple kind of dichotomized classification. You point out in the book, this misses quite a lot. What are the nuances in between? How do you think about this spectrum in your practice? Yeah, you know, when I was a resident, I and I write about this in, in the book, I, I kept this stack of cards in my locker of all my patients. And, but when they died, I'd put them on the left in the dead column. When they survived and lived, I put them in the right. And at the end of the time, thankfully, the, the living column was way bigger than the dead column. But at one point when I was cleaning out my locker, done with training and leaving, I, I picked up that living column and was looking through them. And even though the, the dead column, the dead stack was a lot shorter, when I picked it up, it just seemed so heavy and so weighty. And I was almost afraid to turn over the cards and see who they were because I remembered every one of those people so clearly. And I realized it wasn't as simple as dividing them up into living and dying because, you know, what, what, what that misses is the fact that our life is a process. All of us are dying every day and we're going through a process of living our life. And it's never dichotomized into those who have lived and died because the memories go on, too. You know, yesterday, that same patient I just told you about with the sarcoma, I've already thought about when she leaves the hospital and goes home to into her house, I'm going to go and drive to her house because the family's invited me and be present with her in the living room where her hospital bed is and, and see her. And then I'm going to be with her, uh, you know, hopefully as she's dying, I, I, I will go to her funeral and then she will live on in my mind for the months and years to go. I'll remember when I looked in her eyes, I remember when I stroked her shoulder. I remember when I held her hand and that she told me that her favorite ice cream was Oreo ice cream and that and that when she was a cheerleader, she was the base, the solid recipient of the person flying through the air and, and all these things that, that formed her personality. So I don't think any more of my patients as the, those who lived and those who died. I think of all of them all along that continuum. Let's talk about the intensive care unit or the ICU because you are a pulmonary care, critical care physician, and the book covers so much of what happens to patients in and beyond the intensive care unit. It also comes at an important time because, as you say, the average person will have more than one ICU stay in their lifetime. And during the COVID-19 waves, we witnessed kind of overwhelmed intensive care units. These ICU stays don't just impact the patient at the time of the intensive care unit stay, they impact patients years beyond their hospitalizations and can lead to post-intensive care syndrome. Can you tell us about what kinds of consequences ICU stays have on patients? How did you get interested in this topic? Yeah, I always like to lead with a story, but I'll tell you first the consequences so you'll know where I'm going with this. Patients who get into critical illness at any point in their life, whether they be young or old, so this is not just about old people, very often leave with a cognitive impairment, which is commensurate with a dementia. So memory and executive dysfunction problems on par with Alzheimer's disease, moderate, even mild and moderate, in some cases, severe Alzheimer's disease or traumatic brain injury. And they also have PTSD and depression, and then they have a neck down problem with muscles and nerves. So that's what the post-intensive care syndrome or PICS, P-I-C-S, is all about. I'll repeat that. 
It's cognitive impairment like dementia, depression, PTSD, and then muscle and nerve disease. So Teresa Martin was my patient, and she was a, an incredibly moving person to be around, to take care of. She had a, a, an overdose, an unintentional overdose, and then ended up being cared for me for weeks in the ICU. And I was so thankful when she survived and left and had her come back to my clinic several weeks later, several months later, that is. And I'm just going to read you two paragraphs about what her, that, that, that meeting again was. And again, I thought, wow, she's going to come back in and be like, you're doc, you're the great Dr. Ely, you saved my life. Instead, this is what happened. So she wheels in in a wheelchair and she's 24, 25 years old. Almost immediately, Teresa's mom asked, why can't she bend her arms at the elbows or move her shoulders? Her mom looked drained, more tired even than when she visited her daughter in the hospital. We ran through a litany of other problems that Teresa was having. She couldn't swallow properly or sleep or go to the bathroom alone. She couldn't shower or dress herself. She could walk only a few steps and stairs were impossible. I had no immediate solution for any of it and less of an understanding of where the problems were coming from. So I did what I knew how to do. I ordered blood work and x-rays. The labs didn't show anything alarming, but the x-ray images of her arms and legs revealed large calcium deposits in her elbows, shoulders, and knees. Teresa had heterotopic ossification, a condition which bone develops where it shouldn't due to extreme inflammation and prolonged immobilization. It was like she had rocks growing inside her joints. I'd never seen anything like it and didn't know what to think. Teresa didn't react when I showed her the disturbing images, but her mother nodded in affirmation, as if she now had permission to talk about her other concerns. She told me Teresa's brain wasn't working properly, that she would forget things, people's names, that she'd grown afraid. Miss Martin stopped and shifted. She's a completely different person now. So that's how I got interested in this. And I started seeing people back in clinic, just trying to make sense out of, wait a minute, what's going on? Like they came in with some problem and now they have all these different problems. Did that, did I do that? Did that happen under my, on my watch? And it turns out that it did. And so now we are trying to do our best in medicine and in critical care to understand how do we prevent that? How do we help people survive intact and get back to a new normal, which is close to what they were before critical illness? And that's been the last 25 to 30 years of my life is doing the research, publishing the studies in the Lancet, New England Journal and JAMA, et cetera, to try and change the way that the world does critical care. Wes, can you talk a little bit about the work that you've done, like the ABC and men's trials and and the kind of groundbreaking clinical research uh, on this topic. Sure, Aaron. What we did was we realized that the combination of over-sedation and mobilization was basically probably killing people and creating this PICS problem, post-intensive care syndrome. So we set up a series of a decade's worth of prospective, some in some cases double-blind, in other cases impossible-blind, randomized controlled trials. And we started by every day stopping the ventilator to see if we could get the patient off the ventilator. That was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Then stopping sedation every day. And that was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine by J.P. Kress. Then we combined those two things in the ABC trial, which is the Awakening Breathing Control Trial, published that one in Lancet and proved for the first time in all of critical care 
that stopping sedatives every day in the ICU saved lives. This was a, a crazy idea that people thought, no, sedation is important in the ICU. It's helping them to not remember what they're going through. But it turned out that benzos and propofol and overuse of narcotics were all actually increasing death rates. And it was not a trivial amount of, of survival advantage by turning off the sedation. It was actually a 15% improvement at one year. So instead of dying 45% of the time at one year, they died only 30% of the time. Uh, it's a huge, huge difference in survival. And then we started picking apart the individual drugs. You know, instead of using benzos on everybody, we started using things like alpha-2 agonists and, and fentanyl or, or narcotics, what we call analogous sedation. And through a sequence of multiple trials, we put all this together into a bundle called the ABCDEF bundle. These six letters, which we abbreviate just the letter A, the number two, and the letter F. So the A2F bundle, ABCDEF, or just the A2F bundle. And that's now been studied by itself as a bundle. And in over 30,000 people, we have data now to say that that bundle, the more you comply with it at the bedside, the higher the survival rates go, the shorter length of stay are, the more quickly people go to their home rather than a nursing home. They bounce back to the ICU less often and they, they spend a lot less money and take up a lot of less resources. So there, is a, there was a revolution in the, between 2010 and 2020 of how to use breast practice, evidence-based practice to change things. And, and then COVID hit and the whole thing went to hell in a handbasket in about three months. So we can talk about that too, if you want. Sure. I, I, just a couple more questions about this, because it seemed like sedation not only affected the patients themselves and their outcomes, but actually may have affected the way physicians approached end-of-life discussions or how quickly they were to offer poor prognostications. In the book, you reflect on this possibility when you point out that physicians are three and a half times more likely to remove life support if they think a patient has a one in 10 chance of ICU survival and two and a half times more likely to do so if they think a patient might end up with severe cognitive impairment. How strong do you think this connection is? Is it an issue of depersonalization? Have you noticed a change since, since practices have changed with the publication of your research? I love that you picked up on this, Aaron. That's, that's something that very few people have asked me about in the, from the book, but this is all in every deep drawn breath. And the data stem from a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine by Deborah Cook, who's an iconic figure in all of critical care. But she found that, that stat, she studied this and found that if doctors saw a patient who was unconscious in the ICU, they were much more rapid to assume that that person would go on to have irreversible brain injury. And those patients were shunted towards DNR status much earlier than if the person was awake and looking at the, the physicians and interacting. So I started realizing, oh my gosh, that's what I've been doing too. I wonder how many people I made a DNR because I had iatrogenically sedated them into a coma and then they all of a sudden didn't look like they were going to make it. But really it was me who had done that to them. And I just was shocked that I could have been complicit in this problem. So yeah, I think this is very real. I think that it's something that does result from depersonalization, you know, and, and, and to combat it, I've, I've adopted this practice where now 
when I remember earlier, I said that my patient yesterday told me that she loved Oreo ice cream. And, you know, the reason that I know that now is because every patient now, I ask them four questions. I say, tell me this, what's your favorite food? Or if they're in a coma on a ventilator, I ask their family so that I can still get the information. What's their favorite food, favorite music, hobbies, and pets names. And what I've found about my own self is that if I know somebody's pets, hobbies, food, and music, it is very difficult for me not to think of them as an entire human being. Because now I know these things about them, these personal things. So to see them in gray colors is impossible for me. Now I see them in color and I want to see them in color. And it also makes me, Aaron, want to wake them up so that I can look in their eyes and talk to them and say, hey, you know what? I like Bob Dylan too. Or yeah, I'm totally in love with, I'm a chocoholic. Or, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you love triathlons. That, that's what I do. You know, so anyway, I found common ground in asking these questions, making sure that it, it, I keep these things in my mind, wake the person up, look them in the eyes and try and undo that finding that Deborah Cook published in the New England Journal. Incredible. Uh, and in, in doing all of this, it seems like you ran up against one of the biggest challenges in evidence-based medicine. My humble opinion, I think this is it. Changing the status quo, changing current practice. And part of me sympathizes with this a bit because we're supposed to be skeptical of fads or shiny new discoveries as they often fall short of, of what exists or what we hope that they'll do. But that's not always true. And physicians, I think, need to be more open-minded sometimes. In your book, you point to this example. In a, studies of IC, in a study of ICUs across Germany, only 0.2% of ventilated patients were being walked, despite clear evidence that early mobility helps speed patient recovery. Why is changing practice such a major difficulty in medicine? What are the lessons that you've learned from your own experience in, in changing practice? I think that... First of all, that's such a sad statistic, isn't it? We have data to say that getting people out of the bed, helping them walk, they much more rapidly regain their functional status and they get rid of delirium twice as often. And delirium is a driver of the dementia. So there's this cycle of goodness that occurs when we just wake people up and get them moving. And yet in Germany, they knew those data and they still reported this ridiculously low mobility rate. So why is it that that happens? And I think it's that we, our, our experience and, and, and you doing something over time just breeds this complacency. And we think that the status quo is by definition safe and good, and it's not. And I think that we do more harm by maintaining the status quo than we, that we do by many other like errant, errant sutures or a bad place central line or, you know, not intimating somebody correctly just leaving going the, the bad practices that hurt people is really creating a much taller uh, stack of injury to human injury and personal injury than, than these overt medical errors. In my life as a physician, these are the things that I've tried to overcome by, by modifying the status quo. What I've learned is that the way to modify the status quo is through human story. It's, you have to have the data to support the human story, but the data alone aren't enough. And that's one of the reasons why I, I undertook every deep drawn breath is I realized no manner 
of me publishing in the New England Journal Lancet or JAMA are going to be enough to change medicine because I have to get this message out to the general public and I have to use human stories because that's what ends up changing people's lives and, and, and thoughts. And we have to overcome the culture uh, that is just let's let's keep things the way that they are. So I, I, I like that. I talked a little bit, I think, in there about Everett Rogers' book, uh, Diffusion of Innovations, where he talks about early adopters and late adopters. And there are people who will be early adopters of this new work. But if we don't make our way over to the late adopters, then we aren't going to have sustained change because they have institutional memory of when we've tried things and failed. So we've got to get them on board, too. And that's that's what we worked so hard to do with the IC Liberation Collaborative that got the A2F bundle working at the, you know, in like 2018, 2019. And it's what we're going to have to do to rebuild after COVID as well. One of the other great misconceptions in medicine is the way we think about delirium and patients with delirium in the hospital. It consists, as you point out in the book, of inattention, hallucinations, agitation, and it's extraordinarily common. I mean, it affects 50 to 80% of critically ill patients. And I know it affected my own grandfather when he was hospitalized. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we, we, you know, we treat it as this sort of ephemeral symptom, um, one which eventually dissipates, causes no further issues. It's okay, no worries, time goes on. But that's not the case. Why is delirium so important for physicians to recognize? What the physician and nurse and all of medical professionals need to realize is that when somebody can't pay attention to you and they have disorganization of their thinking, it is a, that's a phenotypic expression on the outside of the fact that in their brain, they have millions and millions of neurons that are not firing appropriately, not communicating. There's breaches of the highways and byways of electricity in the brain when that's happening. And those neurons, the longer that, that person's brain stays like that, the more they lose. So that three months later, they will absolutely have more atrophy in their brain if they had more delirium, the longer that they were delirious. So we know now that every additional day of delirium is an independent predictor of a 10% increased risk of death and about a 35% increased risk in long-term cognitive impairment. So I think we're, it's incumbent upon us, Aaron, to say, if, if my patient's delirious, first off, measure it every day, use some tool, the CAM-ICU or the ICDSC or some tool at the bedside. And if that patient's delirious, it's incumbent upon us to do what we can non-pharmacologically to reduce the duration of that person's delirium. And usually that just means waking them up, getting them out of bed, trying to get them mobilized, or at least having the family at the bedside to have an interpersonal relationship that they can relate to. And these are the pieces of the A to F bundle. This is essentially what the A to F bundle is, which is just a packet of humanism at the bedside to say, you know what? I see you, not, not intensive care unit, but I see you with my eyes and I recognize your humanism, your humanity and your dignity. And I want to lift you up. You describe quite a few patients with PICs who you've seen after their ICU stays. And as, as you sort of read from the book earlier, there, there are more stories in the book where that came from. How do you help these patients? What kind of interventions, whether medication or otherwise, do you offer uh, when you see them in clinic? Right. What, what I do is I try to make them understand in their own personal life, what are their goals that they want to get back to? So Instead of saying, here's what's the matter with you, I say, 
what I asked them the question, what matters to you? And just switching that preposition from with to to, what matters to you, Miss Smith or Mr. Johnson? And then when they tell me, well, here's the things bothering me. I can't remember people, remember people's names at parties, or I've gone back to work and I can't do my computer tasks at work, or I just can't help my kid with their homework. And that makes me feel like a failure. You know, these are the things that I try and say, well, how do we get that back? And cognitive impairment can be improved. Our brains have tremendous neuroplastic power. And in the book, I go over some of the neuroscience of this with Mike Merzenich and Adam Ghazali. And we're right now running people through randomized controlled trials of cognitive rehabilitation. The answers aren't totally worked out yet, but I absolutely would be comfortable telling your listeners that if, if somebody is really into numbers and math, Sudoku, if somebody's into really into letters and, and words, Scrabble or Wordle, you know, these games do help people recover. And I have tons of patients who designed their own cognitive rehab programs over about a 12 week period and see big time improvements. Now we have RO1s from the, from the NIH and VA merits from the, from the Veterans Administration. And we are doing these true scientific studies but in the meantime, people can just say, you know what, cognitive rehab, yeah, bring it on. Let me go do that. And, and then the other thing that we do is we make them realize that they're not crazy. We validate them. We help, we listen to them. And we're doing that in spades right now for long COVID patients who end up having a lot of the similar problems of PICS patients. They have a cognitive impairment that looks a lot like that of PICS, a lot like dementia. It may not be permanent or progressive, but it is of that similar ilk in terms of severity, memory, executive dysfunction, processing speed, that sort of thing. And so we're designing trials to help them as well in a similar vein. That's really cool. What I, I do want to talk about COVID with you. You've written a lot about it. I followed your writing about COVID, particularly kind of in the popular media. What is a very broad question. What lessons do you feel like you've learned or you've taken away from the last couple of years from your experience as an ICU physician with COVID, where did we go right? Where did we go wrong? What, what do we have to do next? Sure. We went right in considering this a virus that needs to be addressed with antivirals and thinking about what the virus does to our body. Like for example, instead of just using Paxlovid, now we, if somebody's sick, we use baricitinib because we know that in fact, I designed the original clinical trial that showed, it's called the, the Cove Barrier Study published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine that showed the survival advantage from baricitinib for acute COVID. Uh, that drug is now one of only two fully FDA approved drugs for COVID. So we got some of the medications right. What we didn't get right was the long-term implications of the virus. We made people feel like when they were having a post-viral illness, that was manifested by brain fog and by POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, by dizziness and the inability to walk around well, we didn't validate them. We told them, you know what, there's not a great basis for this. Um, I've done some testing on you and you're not meeting these criteria. Therefore, I think you're making this up. Have you seen a psychiatrist lately? You know, it's just, you mentioned popular media. I had a piece in Stat News on this. So if your listener wanted to find it, they could just go Wes Ely Stat News Long COVID, where I, I showed three patients 
One of them was picks only. One of them was long COVID only. And one of them had both picks and long COVID. And I tried to get the reader to realize, wow, these are different, but overlapping. And I need to believe my mother or my brother or my friend when they tell me that they are disabled after COVID. We got that way wrong. And we're now two years out and we still don't have any treatments, not a single one for long COVID. So I think we need to do a better job of, of looking down the line at what will be the ramifications of this next epidemic. Because in our lifetime, Aaron, I think that long COVID will probably be the biggest new, newly seen public health problem in our lifetime. I mean, tuberculosis and cholera, you know, th- those are all still there and they're massive public health problems, just to name two. But this one came out of nowhere and it's affecting probably over 100 million people right now. I, I wanted to ask you also about a piece that you had written. It was early during the pandemic, maybe it was summer of 2020, I forget. I think it was in the Washington Post about visitors coming to the hospital because at the beginning of the pandemic, I don't know if our listeners remember, in most places, family members were barred from visiting their their loved ones. And this always struck me as something that was a major error in in our care of COVID patients because it it so easily leads to depersonalization and patients had to say goodbye to their loved ones over FaceTime while a nurse was kind of holding the phone there. How did that come to happen where we we separated patients from the people that they needed the most? Why did we do that? First of all, I would say that it was the most egregious error in thinking that I've run across, and I consider it anti-medicine. I also don't want to point fingers at, at, at we had initially the right idea, which was this virus is contagious, we don't have PPE, and we don't know how contagious it's going to be in the context of our ICU doctors and nurses. And if they all get COVID and die, then we have nobody to take care of other people. Plus, we didn't have vaccines. The, so at the beginning, it, it made some sense, even though it was terrible, terrible, terrible to do to people. But as soon as we had vaccines and enough PPE, and we knew that PPE worked, we should have reversed that. And we didn't. You know, I mean, I never got COVID. And so the fact that there are still hospitals limiting visitation makes no sense because doctors like me can use our PPE. We can gown and glove and mask up and I'm vaccinated. So I'm protected and I take care of people. I, I was in the ICU this week. I took care of eight people with COVID this week who are having heart attacks from clots and PEs and cognitive impairment and delirium and ARDS from COVID. We had all this this week and People think it's gone from the ICU, but it's not, by the way. So the error we made was not reversing those no visitation policies. And we are now in the fall of 2022, over two years out. And I went to a hospital last week here in Nashville, and they had a sign outside the ICU that said, I was going to visit somebody not at my own hospital, and it said, for the patients and your protection, we are stopping all visitation." And I just was, oh, was irate. That is such a lie. That is not for the patients and, and and my protection anymore. That's to the patient's detriment and to my detriment because we can protect them 
with PPE and appropriate visitation policies. This segues a little bit into burnout because burnout was a major issue during the waves of the pandemic, during the entire pandemic, and still is an issue. And you mentioned physician burnout in your book, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Why do you think there are these record levels of physician burnout now? What's the cause? How do we address it? Yeah, think about if you remember back to the pickers that I that made me want to go into medicine. These are people I worked alongside day in, day out in the in the fields of the tomato tomatoes, the melons, the okra, the potatoes. And I knew them by name. And I touched them and I smelled their sweat. And they are the reason that I went into medicine. And now 30 years later of me being a doctor, that's what keeps me coming back is knowing that I can establish these very intimate interpersonal relationships with the people that I'm there to serve. And so if you strip that away, the doctor and the nurse has nothing other than the science to capture their interests. And science alone won't heal the patient and it won't heal the, the, the healthcare professional. So this is a great place to bring in perhaps the concept of mercy. You know, what the reason I went into medicine was so that I could provide healing and mercy to other people. And my working definition of mercy is my willingness to dive into the chaos of another person's life and provide lifting and healing. So if I am to dive into their chaos and provide lifting and healing, then I have to know that person. I have to see them, look in their eyes. I have to have an interpersonal relationship with them and their loved ones, their family members. So burnout got sent through the roof during no visitation because the doctors and nurses were outside the glass. They weren't there intimately with their patients and loved ones, except very quickly in and out of the room. And they didn't develop these relationships. And then the, 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 the FaceTime videoing and, and Zoom calls, they crushed us. I mean, that was painful to do and to watch somebody die by waving at a screen. It's the, it's, it, it's, it's the worst form of depersonalization because yes, you can see them, but you're, you're so far from touch. So I believe it has to be touch first and technology second. And that's essentially the message of every deep drawn breath is how do we as human beings get through human suffering toward recovery? And, and, and how do we undo the things that we thought were the right answers in the 90s and early 2000s? Uh, and it really is through human relationship. Yeah, and, it, and we were talking with last week with Dr. Danielle Ofri about this, about the, how the computer sort of comes between the doctor and patient. And in clinic, we're like clicking through Epic and focusing on Epic, but we rarely make eye contact with the patient. And medicine seems to be about the digital technology, the computer, not the relationship between doctor and patient, which, which I find to be extraordinarily frustrating in my own practice. I completely agree. That's a, that's well said, but there is a, there is hope for moving forward though. And the hope is that if we recognize this in 2022, we can build a way forward that says, you know what? I don't want to live that way anymore as a doctor or as a patient. And, and as a doctor, as a physician, I can say to myself, the soul of my practice is to see the soul of my patient. And so if, if I don't, if I want to live as a true healer in medicine, then that means I've got to touch them and look in their eyes and talk to them and find out who they are, you know, 
ice cream, music, hobbies. Those, that's just the beginning. After that, I want to talk to them about what matters to them in life and how they, what, what, what journey led them to their addiction. What journey led them to this, this eating disorder or whatever they want to share with me. That's what I want to understand so that I can help them get onto a path that, that helps them the best version of themselves, live out the best version of themselves. That's really what medicine is all about. So the hope is, yeah, now I can see my errors and I can get into recovery myself as a physician and steer my medical practice toward recovery as well. Wes, what advice do you have for young physicians who are, or soon to be physicians who are in medical school or, or, you know, interns or first year residency, whatever it is for how they kind of maintain that humanism in the face of all these distractions and in the face of a system that seems to put up obstacles rather than take them down. I think that a way forward that I have found helpful is to make sure that I don't allow myself to be tricked into thinking that humanistic care all of a sudden means such a time constraint that it's not doable. That is not true. Humanism is doable at the bedside merely by taking an extra 30 seconds to acknowledge and be compassionate with another human being. So we can teach compassion. And I, I cover this in the book as well. You know, for example, if I just teach medical students to say to their patients, I don't know what you're going through, but I promise you that I'm going to stay with you during this process of suffering because I want to be your physician or your nurse. And I'm going to sit here and be part of your process. I, I'm going to dive into what's happening for you and, and be present with you during your suffering, even if I don't have all the answers. That's exactly what I'm saying to my long COVID patients right now. I see you and I can hear how you're suffering. You are the expert of your own illness. And I'm listening to you and I want to validate the way you're suffering. Even though you don't meet criteria for POTS and your neurocognitive testing is not that abnormal, I see how it's disrupting your life. And I will stay with you as we search for answers over the next months and years. And that's, that's compassion. And that helps me create that connection to my patients so that I avoid burnout and I stay connected to the reason I got into medicine in the first place. You know, I have another question, one last question that, that segues a little bit away from the book, but I think it, it relates very intimately to the themes that you discuss in the book. I listened to your talk on physician-assisted suicide from a few years back, and the, the topic has come up in various episodes of this show. Just a couple of weeks ago, a Canadian veteran called Veteran, veteran Affairs Canada seeking support for PTSD, and the employee brought up medical assistance in dying or physician-assisted suicide euthanasia, unprompted. The veteran was reportedly shocked by the suggestion, and his family told the press that the soldier had been making positive progress in his physical and mental rehabilitation and felt betrayed by this agency that's supposed to assist him and help him. Uh, and one of my great concerns for with a system that allows for euthanasia or, or physician-assisted suicide 
is how it facilitates the disposal of human life simply as a result of inconvenience or even just as a mistake. And it does seem to be gaining popularity. How do you see this affecting the profession of, of medicine? And how do we kind of resist that temptation? Well, I love ending on this topic because it takes us all the way back to the pricelessness of every human being. There is no price that can be paid, that can be put on a human life. And no amount of disease, this is very important, no amount of disease reduces that infinite value of a human being by an iota. Okay. And in fact, I said that yesterday to my patient's family who was saying about their daughter who was, who was dying of the uh, spindle cell sarcoma. That's very sad for me to hear that a man called for help with PTSD and somebody said, if you thought of killing yourself, you know, you thought of suicide. Uh, instead of saying, you know what, you're priceless, you're suffering, let me dive into your chaos and provide you lifting and healing. That's what mercy is. So euthanasia is false mercy. Euthanasia says, I will dive into your chaos. I'm totally happy to dive into your chaos. But suicide doesn't provide lifting and healing. It provides an end, but nobody can tell us what that end is. Because nobody has come back from the dead to tell us, no, no regular human being. Um, I happen to be Christian, so I'll let you know that I believe uh, in, in, in Christ. But, but, uh, but no regular human being has ever come back and told us what it's like after you die. And there may be nothing. You know, there may be nothing. I don't know that there's something. So we're suggesting that somebody in their life and, and make themselves from a somebody into a nobody. And let me say this, because the people who are very pro-euthanasia listening to me probably right now are getting upset. Let me say this. I don't know what's best for you. I don't know what's best for everyone else. Okay. And I do not pretend to know what is best for everyone else. That would be an immense amount of pride and hubris on my part. But what I do know is that the practice of medicine should not be involved in the active taking of another human life. If there is something in society that needs to be set up for people to take their own life, leave the doctors out of it. Okay. And I don't know how you organize that. But what I will say is that when the doctors are involved in the active taking of a life with the intent to take a life, it has irrevocably changed the practice of medicine because the, every patient should be 100% certain, not 99, not 98, not 90, but 100% certain that I am there to benefit them to help them with their life circumstances and suffering. And the second that doctors are involved in the active taking of life, no patient can ever again be 100% certain that that doctor doesn't have some secondary gain or some other reason. Because I might want your life taken so that I can get a bed in my ICU or so that I can have some reduction in societal costs because I believe in social justice and I don't want to spend any more money on your life. There's all kinds of things that could come into play and the one thing, and I'll close on this, is that the people who will be most adversely affected by this are not the educated and the rich. They are the, they are the people who don't have a voice because of education or because of mental impairment or something of that nature. And so 
I am speaking up against the practice of physician-assisted suicide euthanasia for the reasons I just stated, but also because I want to provide a voice for the people who are the most vulnerable in society. And I think that, that they will be the most disproportionately affected by this. If you don't believe me about that, then you can look at the data in Belgium and in, and in the Netherlands, where we know that now up to 27% of all of the lives taken in a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine were for euthanasia without patient request, euthanasia without consent. 27% in a paper published in, I think, 2013 or 2014 in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine. So I am not making this up. This is a data-driven comment that I'm making. And thank you, Aaron, for allowing me to close with those comments. Wes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a really wonderful conversation. Appreciate it. I appreciate it so much. Have a great day. Just a note for our listeners, please go out and, and buy Every Deep Drawn Breath. Not only is it a wonderful book, but all proceeds from the book go to COVID and ICU survivors, much needed fund for, for our patients and, and for our, our fellow citizens. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.